not to be for the Red Roses as they came agonizingly short against the Black Ferns in Saturday's final. What an end to the tournament it was, but today we turn our attention back to the Autumn Internationals with the titanic clash of England-New Zealand to come on Saturday. Joining me, Chris and Brendan to talk about it is former England captain and flanker Chris Robshaw. Attention back to men's rugby this week. Chris Hewitt and Brendan will join me in a second. For now, it's just me and former England captain and flanker Chris Robshaw. How are you, Chris? I'm very well, Ollie. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm in this transition now, so I've just kind of formally retired, although I kind of retired probably about six months ago now. Three dislocated shoulders at the age of 36. My body is not quite what it was. But look, I'm, I'm grateful I got to got to this age. A lot of players don't, don't get to get here. So no, I've enjoyed it, uh, but it's time for what's next. So the retirement was very much linked to the three shoulders. You were obviously with San Diego Legion. They happened in quite quick succession, didn't they? They did, unfortunately, yeah. I did two last season. I probably should have had surgery straight away. And then annoyingly, I got through the whole of this season, or my last season, and the last five minutes of the last game of the season, it went again. I was just over a ball and then got hit. And and actually, before that, I was um and ah in weather because there was an option to go do another year uh, over there. And I was um and ah in and about what to do and whether to go back. You know, Because it's, it's a big decision to finally... Finally saying, nah, that's enough. There's no, unless you're Joe Marlowe, there's no going back. <laughs> so, yeah, and then that, that was like, okay, you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you view that trip to the States? Obviously, that was a big decision in itself. I know you probably didn't spend as much time on the pitch as you wanted, but consider it a success? Yeah, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. For me, it was going somewhere and being somewhere new and somewhere different and experiencing that type of stuff. Lifestyle was great. The rugby, I must admit, has a bit of a way to go. Not so much the actual games, because the games are competitive. You have a lot of older players like myself. You have some younger guys who haven't quite made it in respective leagues around the world. English guys, Aussie, Sappers, a lot of Polynesian lads. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, there's quite a good mix. And then you've got some kind of key American guys kind of working their way through. But I think in terms of the structure of it, it's got a bit of a way to go. It needs a bit of development. But with the World Cup in 2031, I think, I've no doubt it will get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were speaking about that with Brett Gosper and the World Cup out there. It is very, very exciting. Now, in terms of you being back in the UK, obviously you were just telling me off the air that you've just put the baby down to sleep. The baby is one and a half? Yeah, exactly. 18 months yeah. now. 18 months. How's fatherhood going? If you'd asked me last week, I would have loved it because he was in a great phase. This, this week, he's been a bit fussy. But you know what? It's been brilliant. I, I've really enjoyed it. I, I'm privileged that I've got a lot of time to spend with him um, as well, which is nice. And we're fortunate in terms of that that respect. And it, it's just a big journey, isn't it? You, you learn about yourself. You learn about each other. They continue to evolve. And in all honesty, I wasn't a, a massive eternal man before I had my own kids. And then when you have your own, it, it is very different. But no, I'm loving it at the moment. I think we're going to the Christmas markets and all that stuff next week. So... I very much look forward to doing all that. Other than fatherhood, how is rugby retirement looking right now? What are you? What can you tell us that you've got on the horizon? I've been busy in all honesty. Had a, a fair amount going on, and I was just trying to work out what this transition is because you need time to have a bit of downtime. And I think I had a good couple of months off over the summer where I I didn't really do anything. Of course, there's a bit of planning for the future, but it was about being back in England reconnecting with people, seeing the friends, the family, all that kind of stuff. Um, so now what, what is going on? Me and my wife have launched a foundation. So we launched a foundation to empower young lives through music and sport. We have a gala dinner on the 30th of November, which is going to be amazing. We've already helped uh, or supported a women's refuge in Surrey, supplying music and sports classes for the women and the kids. Uh, plus plus kind of equipment. Nike have very generously given us a grant. I'm working for a, I do a day a week for a wine investment company called Binex, which I'm enjoying. I'm actually going down to Bordeaux on Monday for four days, which is a different type of work, I must admit. And everyone, everyone actually always says to me, oh, you rugby guys, you must drink a lot. You must drink a lot. And it's so professional. Guys don't. You might have a beer here and there. And obviously, if you have a good win, of course, you'll have a, a big blowout and all that kind of stuff. But it's a corporate world. I've never drunk as much in the corporate world and dinners and lunches and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm definitely getting used to it. But no, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm learning about the wine. I'm doing my exams and stuff. I think I'm going to start doing my course in January. So yeah, it's an exciting time. 
And the charity, it's obviously sport and music, like you said. It's very clear to me that it's a combination of you and Camilla, obviously you sport uh, music. is that Was that pretty much the vision of it? Yeah, very much so. As much as I would love to admit I can sing, I really can. <laughs> but yeah, exactly that. Like Sport for me, unfortunately, when my father passed when I was a young kid, um, was huge in terms of my confidence and my socialising and structure and all that kind of stuff. And the benefits of sport and music are are pretty similar and they've both been fantastic for me and Camilla. And it's something we've wanted to do for a long time, but time kind of got away from us. And I heard a fantastic saying the other day, I listened to a lot of podcasts and stuff. And I think it was Jake Humphreys on uh, his his one. I mean, yeah, very- about being getting better or something. something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it was, okay, when's the best time to plant a tree? 30 years ago. Okay. When's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. So it's about that kind of thing. And look, there's things which will continue to evolve and we're kind of catching up with ourselves and all this kind of stuff. But no, look, we're excited by it. We're passionate about it. And we want to we want to help some people. And, and people always say there's, there's a lot of foundations and charities out there. And that's true, there are. But there's always people to help, especially at the moment. The entire nation probably knows about your singing ability from the camera and the microphone getting a bit too close at national anthem time, <laughs> tweaking them on, a, on an occasion or two. Now, look, we, guys, we've got a ton to get through and I'm keen to move on. Brendan and Chris Hewitt, we've got actually a name clash for the first time on the Rugby Paper podcast. So, Chris, I might have to, uh, Chris Hewitt, I might have to call you Chewy for today. I hope that's all right. Well, only one of us, um, we were both flankers. Only one of us Captain Walker Old Boys, and it wasn't Rob Short. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a brag or not. There's still time. <laughs> yeah, there's still time. We 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 all we also we also share a large number of England caps. Between the two of you, yeah. Six, well, nice, 60, nice 60. To see you both. It's been a while. It's been a long time, so it's good to it's, good to see you both. It's very nice to see you, Chris. Yeah, good to see very you, Chris. You're looking good. Yeah, you're 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 looking un- unnervingly well after the rigors of a lifetime in um, in pro rugby. So it's. Uh... I think it, I think it's losing a bit of bulk, to be honest, because a lot of people do keep saying, "Oh, you look look well." And I saw Ollie knows Matt Simmons as well. I saw him the other day, and he he's trimmed down as well. And I think you have to learn how to get your diet in order as a rugby player and at Queens or England. So we, I would have breakfast at home. We'd go in, do weights. We'd have another breakfast. We'd then go and do a, a unit session. We'd then probably have lunch. We'd then go in the afternoon, do another rugby session, and then have a meal after that. And then I'd probably get home and have dinner when I when I was back, plus a protein shake and stuff like that. And and now I'm thinking, geez, how can I stay away from the cupboard? <laughs> oh, Did you ever get peckish in between? Well, you do, actually. That's where you get the protein, the bars, <laughs> and all that stuff. The thing is, when you're competing at le- that level, you, you have to because everyone else is that kind of size as well. Mm. So you have to have the bulk and you have to have the stability in your body and the strength to carry into two people who are 20 stone and all the speed to get around them. And I, I didn't have that. So you had to had to have that, that strength, really. It kind of anti-ages you as well, doesn't it, that weight loss? Or that, that, that's what I found every time I gain a bit of weight I look in the mirror and I'm, I'm like oh my god I look way way older and being at uni people are like Ollie you do not look our age I'm like I'm not thankful <laughs> for that comment like is that a compliment it's <laughs> definitely not it's definitely not um right let's look I want to look at the autumn internationals but very very briefly obviously the, the last two weeks we've looked at the red roses um and we were gearing towards a world cup final in which we argued on the pod that the red roses were favorites obviously we'll all know we all know what happened. Great game. Unfortunate red card, 18 minutes in. Um, Brendan, I'll come to you. Sans red card, do you think England would have won? Um, that's a really difficult one. I, I'm a great believer of, of the 14-man shorthanded victory. You know, I've seen so many of them in my time, and, and teams play really, really well. You'd, and, you know, there are red cards and red cards. Red card out on the wing is not so devastating as a scrum half or, or certainly a, a forward. You know, when you have to do the major shift. I thought it was a cracking final. I thought it was two very evenly matched teams, whatever, uh, red card or no red card. Uh, I didn't have England as quite as strong favourites as some people. I thought they were didn't play particularly well against France in the pool and made pretty hard work of Canada. Um, but then again, I thought New Zealand were very lucky against France in the semi-final. So I was expecting, you know, a very, very close match. I don't think the red card had that much difference. Chewy, what did you make of it? Brilliant game. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I had the good fortune, um, the Independent, when it was on its last leg, sent me to um, to Paris in 2014. 
to watch the final that England won. And partly because of manpower at the Indy, which was non-existent, and, and partly from, through my own failings, I haven't taken women's rugby nearly seriously enough, actually. And I found that I really enjoyed the experience in ways I didn't expect really to enjoy it. It was almost, and this is not being disparaging, it was almost like watching rugby from a bit back in the day because it was far more position-specific. Second rows were doing the things that you always expected second rows to do. Centres were doing things that you always expected centres to do. The man's game was developed so massively that everyone's so fit, everyone's so dynamic, that everyone sort of does everything. And you watch it and you think, my God, I don't see the distinguishing aspects of it in the way that I used to. So I really enjoyed the game. I love the contrast of styles. I thought possibly England thought themselves into a a bit of a blind alley by building that whole sort of strategy around the driving more. That's a, another question, and it's a broader question of whether that's good for the game, actually, the way it's being used at the moment. I admire the New Zealanders, New Zealanders massively for their adventure, for their ability to think on their feet. I thought they had um, a magnificent centre, a terrific scrum half, some really good back rowers. I thought they deserved to win the game because... It was so easy for them to lose it because if they played a normal game of rugby and kicked for a touch when they were under pressure, there would have been 14 driving more tries, not four. So I, I admired the way they thought their way through the game, thought on their feet, and it was a terrific experience all round. As good a game as there was over the weekend, and there were two or three really good games at the weekend, but that was up there with them, for sure. Chris, I, uh, I suspect you were up at 6.30 for baby-related reasons anyway. Did you manage to... Looking on the game, or did you not have time? I did. No, yeah, I watched it. It was, um, like you said, it was, it was amazing, but obviously, of course, frustrating as well to to finish the way they did, and of course, with the record they have, and yeah, I thought New Zealand's ability to change the way they they played, and some of those tries, the two tries they scored in that second half, were, and some of the offloading they produced was, and it is sometimes hard to argue with that. It's sometimes hard. Yes, there was a. We spoke about the red card and, and ifs and buts and hindsight and all that kind of stuff. And we, we can we can all pick that apart. But like I said, the, the tries that you've seen and scored at the end were, were amazing. I think the, the biggest thing as well is you look at the crowds, the crowd supporting the tournament and uh, back here, people getting behind it, whether it be on the social media or the parks and all that, or rugby clubs and all that kind of stuff. And I think the biggest thing now is it can't just be a every four-year thing. And it can't just be the international stuff. The club game has to has to continue to develop for for the, the women. Because I know, and, and both Chris and Brendan will know that the goal is to sell out Twickenham in four years' time, which I think is is very doable. Especially you look at the World Cup, um, sorry, the Euros and the, the Lionesses. Yeah, um, and it is amazing. And I think I think if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're actually having their first standalone game at Twickenham this year. Yeah, that's right. Which I think is again, it's huge strides forwards again. And I went and coached an under thirteen children girls side, and we're just chatting to this little girl. And I said, "Are you going to play for England when you're older?" And she was like, "No, I'm going to play for the Red Roses." And it's that type of inspiration that these Red Roses have created. Because when I was a kid, and, and I'm not sure about you guys, there was the odd girl kind of playing with the boys' side. And then I went back 10 years ago and there was kind of a group of about 10, 10 girls kind of playing. And, and now that's their, that's their inspiration and that's their career drive, similar to the young boys. They want to go out there and achieve that. And and now it is it is feasible. Chris, tell me this. Why were the girls who played um, in mixed age group rugby always the strongest people in the team? It was absolutely scary. Um, they, they, could sort of, they tackled like tons of bricks and mauled and what, what have you. And they, they were, I, I remember my son was playing in, um, you know, back in the day, he was playing playing at, at that age in mixed in mixed rugby. And there were the girls in the team were fantastically sort of focused and physically strong. I know the the, the gaps grow as people get get older and what have you. But there is a there is a basic appeal, I think, of, of rugby union to. Um, you know, to the female population. I, I think it can go from strength to strength, massively. I agree, agree. Um, and like anything, it, it does need support. It needs it needs the TVs, it needs the sponsors, it, all that kind of stuff. A lot, exactly the same as a men's game. 
without stuff like that, it, it doesn't exist. But I think now you look at and you look at the product it produces and the games it produces, and they're great to watch. Um, and it's just making sure it's not a every four year thing that again it's now being supportive. And I know they didn't win, but they inspired and they've done so much. It's about how do we or how does the country continue to build on that now and not say, okay, we're brilliant, but let's just put that to bed for four years or until the Six Nations, until I, I've already seen that on social media, there's been kind of adverts for the games coming up already and the early bear tickets and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's definitely moving forward. It, it needs some clever game. work though, Chris, from World Rugby, because there are three professional national teams in the world now, France, New Zealand, England, uh, Canada are semi-pro, and the rest are nowhere. Now, they've become seriously good rugby teams, those three nations, and Canada, to be fair, but the gap between them and the rest of the world is huge. It's absolutely massive. So those four could grow, and that they could have annual series and that, but that's not going to grow the world game. That's just going to grow the women's game in those four countries. So, you know, hopefully world rugby, I'm hoping that the women's game will be administered entirely different to the men's game, you don't take the men's game as the template and you try and take all these other countries. Italy aren't bad. You know, Scotland and Wales should be better. USA used to be a force. Fiji could be good. Their sevens team is brilliant. Their women's sevens team. But you've got to take these nations with you. Otherwise, you don't have a world game. You just have an, a fantastic professional league in Britain or England, actually, RFU, and four teams who meet every year in a sort of unofficial world championship. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's put not dissimilar to you look at the rugby league. Yeah, exactly. There's probably four sides which are yeah. always, always going to be up, up there and then there's kind of everyone else. But it, it's tough. But actually, being in America and you look at the size of America and trying to govern a league in something that big to try and develop something worldwide is, is hugely tough. And like you said, the funding probably does have to come from the top somewhere. Uh, and it has to be supportive. But that's the other thing. How do you hold every country accountable when, if you're not going to make it professional, when people have to go get different jobs and all over the country and facilities and all that kind of stuff? It's it's a, hu it's a huge thing. And uh, in the men's game, we have our own issues, as, as we're all aware of at the moment, and we're nowhere near perfect. But it's improving. And I think that from an English point of view, and look, we, can, we can speculate about other countries and all that kind of stuff, from an English point of view, the league is growing. Uh, there are sponsors coming into it. There are more teams evolving. There's more premiership sides or the men's premiership sides and stuff kind of joining force with that and really supporting that as well. Um, so we are taking steps forward. But again, look, there's always more you can do, isn't there? There's always more and different things. And I think it's about thinking clearly and thinking smart about it and about how we do it. Yeah, yeah. I think for the sake of time, we'll have to move on. Obviously, yeah, huge congratulations anyway to the Red Rose. And like we've all been saying, um, they have certainly inspired the next generation. And I think what we can hope for is a World Cup that provides more games that are as competitive as the semifinals we saw and that final. Now, the perfect bridge to our next topic is the fact that the England team for New Zealand has just been announced at the time of recording. I don't know if you gentlemen have seen, I think the headline is that Billy Vunapolo is back in at number eight and Sam Simmons is in at six. Marutoje in the second row. Tom Curry is obviously staying at seven. Chris, Robshaw, obviously. Well, you're both flankers, but I'm going to come to Chris Robshaw. Sorry, Chewy. Uh, what do you the make... best to last. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of that? I know Maro played at six when you were still in the England setup for the first time and people have debated whether that's a viable option. Do you prefer him in the row? I do. I mean, Mario Toje is one of the best second rowers in the world. Like, there's there's no doubt about that. He is he is a phenomenal athlete. He's a phenomenal talent. And I think if he's one of the best, we should probably play him in that position. Uh, and and don't get me wrong, he's he's not a bad flanker either. But I think I think he's better suited to that. And but I think it's one of these ones where he is he is a bit of a, a hybrid. He can play back row. He can play second row. But I always think kind of as a it depends on what you want and as a team do you want to be more mobile or are you going kind of the heavy lifting bit bit more of the, the grunt stuff and it's like if you play him at six it's like playing three second rows 
Whereas if you play him in the second row, I think it's like playing four back row. Yeah. So I think if you could have kind of four back row, it would probably trump three second rows. So again, you have that extra dynamic of him in the second row. Obviously, he's one of the best in the world in that position. But also, he gives you as much probably around the field as the back row. So it's like having that extra four set. And I think as a player, when people used to ask me six or seven, and I'm sure Mario said he won't really care as long as he's playing. You you want to be on the pitch, you want to be starting, and regardless of where he plays, he'll always produce the goods. I'm going to put you on the spot. Say the World Cup final is tomorrow. Doesn't matter about the op- opposition, but who is your starting England back row? Oh, if everyone's fit. If everyone's fit and you know, in what, some sort of form. To, I would love to see a back row, but then you think you've got Courtney to bring back in. Well, we've had many debates over whether he's six or in the row as well. Yeah, if he's second row or six. Or... So I would put either Courtney or Jack Willis at six. I would go Don Brown at eight and Tom Curry at seven. And with that, you get a lot of speed, you get power. You've you got carriers, you've got jacklers, you've got defenders. Yeah, that would be my... Chewy, what do you make of that? I, I, agree with, I agree with Chris on an awful lot of that. Um, I, can, I can see why... Um... I assume Tuilangi's back, by the way, is he? Yeah, he's that. Yeah, uh, it looks like it. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can. I mean, I mean, Eddie's a bit of a size guy, anyway. Um, that, that's what that's what comes from being three foot six, isn't it? That you admire the, um, you 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 admire the bigger folks. <laughs> but it, it's um, so I, I can I can understand a lot of that, and I do think, having spent years of my life feeling that Billy Vunapola was rather overrated, and that he was. Not great on the turn, not great defensively, not great, you know, in his grand coverage at times. I do feel, think he's played out of his skin actually <laughs> since his return. He's he's played extremely well, but I do agree with Chris that those kinds of real explosions of pace that you can get from from your back row if they're all playing at their best, it's the unpredictability. I think is is crucial. I, I think Curry can play pretty much anywhere. I, I think he's a little bit off his game at the moment. Actually, at the moment, I, he's he's. Um, but everyone goes through their flat spells. I, I think he's a genuine world class player at his best. Uh, so I think he's he's a must. I'm interested in the Don Brandt argument that may well come into force, of course, because Skinner's pushing off to France, isn't he? Uh, sorry, Simmons is pushing off to Simmons, France. Yeah, he is. So it, it, you know, if if the current regulations hold, then he's pretty much ruling himself out of stuff going forward. That is post World Cup. It's post World Cup, yeah. So it, it, I, I don't see a massive, a massive difference between uh, Simmons and Don Brandt. I mean, stylistically, they're slightly different. Uh, I think Don Brandt has a habit of just being a little, going a little bit anonymous at times, but then he does come back with a real, as a real sort of force of nature. He does have gifts that can't be coached. I think. He, he has an he, there is something unusual about Don Brandt, which must be quite difficult to handle for the opposition. So I can I certainly feel that he has he's, he's a definite England future. Quite how much Eddie likes him, I don't know, but of course you can say that for a whole bunch of players. Willis, I think, is probably if, if the jackal position is going to stay in the game uh, in in the way that it is used at the moment. I think Willis is probably the best at it. He's extraordinarily good, and I think he's he's got to be in the side because he makes. He makes three or four crucial interventions a game, and they, in a tight match, as Chris will know better than anyone, three, three or four crucial interventions <laughs> equals a victory quite often. So um, I, I, there's a lot of options there, a lot of options. I think Curry is an absolute must. I think number eight's open, and I, I'd like to see Willis in the side. Chris, you were quoted back in 2019 as saying that Tom Curry was England's best player. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Now, we've had a few discussions on this podcast about how him being mucked around with being put at number eight or at six or at seven, potentially having gained a little bit of timber as well and maybe losing a bit of speed that comes with that means he hasn't quite reached those heights from back in 2019. Would you agree with that? And if not, do you feel that he is the same player? Yeah, look, interesting. I, I saw a stat the other day. I think Tom Curry, was he 23 now? He's got 40-odd caps. It, it's phenomenal. And I think, I think whenever players get into that position... People always look at someone else a bit more favourably. You kind of forget how good they are. You forget kind of what they do every day. And that was an interesting one. I had a, a great conversation about it the other day. And I always say that whenever a coach is choosing a team, it's a bit like a jigsaw and they kind of know what they want. And it depends on whether your piece fits into it. And I heard a great thing about 
that had come out about Tom Curry and why he was being played at eight. Because he doesn't, Eddie in particular, doesn't have many jacklers in the back line. You get some teams, you look at kind of the French back in the day, Bastro was hugely over the ball. You ran into him. It was like having a, well, yeah. a better anchor over the ball, to be honest. He was superb. And you get a lot a lot of these Brian O'Driscoll back in the day. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of these jacklers where you look at this England back line and there's not many people who are competitive over the ball. Of course, they tackle hard and all that kind of stuff, but they're not jacklers. And for Eddie at that time, he wanted a jackler. He wasn't sufficient just having one. I can't remember who played seven at that, that period. So he was like, for that moment, it was more important for him in his jigsaw, what he was looking at, to have two jacklers on the pitch, regardless if he missed out on a, a ball carrying number eight or a specialist number eight. So that was his way of looking at it. For the dynamic of the side, at that particular moment, it was more important to have the jacklers on and the opposition they were playing rather than having a an extra big ball carrier when you have someone like a Manu in the back line or a, a Freddie Stewart who's six foot five and can carry hard and all this kind of stuff. So sometimes there's more to it than people just think about saying, yes, why is he an untraditional number eight playing the number eight role? But I think, look, he's he always plays well. I agree, is he is he back to his best? Who knows? But he's consistent. And you know what you're going to get with him every single week. And I think a game like this, up against New, New Zealand, Surveyor coming to town, will bring the best out of him because he that's the type of player he is. Chris, I think Chris makes a really good point there. And actually, Surveyor uh, is a bit of an Uber Curry, really, because he can play across the back row as well. And 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 he's the, he's probably the, the back rower in the world at the moment. So... If, if England have someone who can play that kind of surveyor role uh, in terms of his versatility and his all-round contributions in the game, then we're we're, we're pretty happy. So I, I'm while I think Curry's a little bit off his game, I wouldn't be picking a side without him. And Chris Allwood also raises the point about the two jacklers. I mean, and in 2015 at the World Cup, what did the Aussies have? They had Pocock at eight, Hooper at seven, and yeah. those are two of the best jacklers perhaps there's been anywhere. At any point, so uh, you you can you can see where that argument comes from. Yeah. I'd, I'd say Saturday is a really crunch game for Sam Simmons, who is a talent and is a hell of a carrier. But for me, he hasn't transformed his Exeter you know, ruthlessness and pace on the ball in England. You know, in England colours yet. Now he's had a bit of a stop-start career and off the bench, and sometimes I think he might have played six already. But I think internationally he's a six, and England I think also need that absolutely dynamic ball carrier because although Tom Curry can carry um, carry very well, he's got so much else to do and you know he's not the best carrier. So I think a bit of dynamic, you know, dynamic running going forward is what Sam Simmons can offer. But time's running out because Jack Willis is very much on the radar. Although I noticed, by the way, guys, he's been listed as unattached, where in actual fact he is with Toulouse and will be with Toulouse for the rest of the season. So it'll be wow. interesting to see how England sidestep yeah. that one in terms of selecting him. So I think Sam Simmons has got a big match on his plate. If he puts his hand up on Saturday, he could you know, almost sort of murkier the waters a little bit because England have got so many options. They do at some stage need to make a choice. But this is his chance. Um, he, you know, a big one from him on Saturday and he gets right back into the equation. I want to look at the back line very, very briefly. And we've had... Several discussions about this as well. England's back three selections. Johnny May, Jack Knoll on the wing. You've got the likes of Tommy Freeman, Adam Radwan, Caden Murley, who once again haven't been given a look in. Brendan, do you consider that a bit of a lateral move in terms of this is the chance? It's an odd one. Um, this is New Zealand and possibly, possibly not the match to be experimenting. You know, I mean, Radwan is a talent. He is a talent. He scores some amazing tries. Tommy Freeman is a, a beautiful, complete package already. But it's New Zealand at Twickenham. England really need a win. You know, Jack Noll and Johnny May never let them down. I'd like to think there'd be room still before the World Cup to give one or two of these young kids on the wing their proper chance. Uh, but I'm OK with the selection for this week. And Jack Van Portfleet, do you think he's now the number one nine nailed on? Yeah, I'm glad now? to see him start. I mean, yeah. you know, um, I've seen nothing wrong yet from him, uh, but we need to know how he goes starting against New Zealand. That would be a, a very good game. match for him. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of selection is Eddie Jones essentially nailing his colours to the mask with the Smith and Farrell axis. 
Chris, what do you make of that? The fact that he's basically committed to that until the World Cup, more or less. And as long as they're both fit, I don't think we're going to see another 10-12 combination. No, and I think that's what you want as a player. You want to you want to be backed in those situations to get game game time together, understanding. It'd be interesting to know actually how many games Owen has played at ten compared to twelve for England. I don't, I don't know what the stat is. Obviously, it's his hundred cap this weekend, but whether that be for the Lions, he's played a lot, probably more at twelve and ten for England. We've obviously George Ford before him, maybe Charlie Hodgson with him as well. Um, he's kind of created that role a lot, and I think. Another way of looking at that kind of axis is, and Saracens are the opposite. I think you look at Saracens and it's about having two distributing playmakers. So someone like a Saracens have obviously Owen at 10 and they have Alex Goode who can step up from fullback. With England, you look at his back line, Freddie Stewart, superb. I think he could be one of the best fullbacks kind of going. Fantastic under the high ball, but what are his distributing skills like? And the rest of this back line, obviously you've got Manu at 12, Oh, sorry, at 30. And again, probably not the best distributor. We know what he's about. And then the wingers, they kind of stay out there. So all of a sudden, you're looking at who is your second distributor. You can't just rely on this one guy. So again, Eddie likes to have that option, similar to when he had George Ford. And now and again, you need to have these distributors because if you just have the one, it's a lot easier to defend. It limits your game a lot more. Therefore, having the markers that are in together, it gives a lot more kind of opportunities out there for this team to get going. Chewy, I want to come to you about the fact that these sides haven't met since 2019. Carl Sinclair gave a very, very interesting interview this week about that 2019 game and an, a team talk that Eddie Jones gave where I believe he sliced a Kiwi in half with a samurai sword. And oh. <laughs> if he said he sliced a watermelon or an elephant in half with a samurai sword, you might be impressed. But a Kiwi fruit? It's a, small, it's, it's a smaller target. What, what is what? what is I don't know. And apparently that showed them how they were going to win New, uh, against New Zealand. And from that point, he was absolutely sure they were going to win. I'll, I'll tell you what. That is there. There are a couple of things around this. Uh, that New Zealand. I mean, England played unbelievably well in that semi final in 2019. It was terrific. The try count even then was one try each. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, and New Zealand were played off the park in in 2012 when Chris played uh, under under Lancaster in that match. I've got a feeling that the tri-count was shared that day and you played them off the park. They are unbelievably dangerous. So, so, the, the, so, the, so the fact that you, can, that you can dominate in so many areas and still be vulnerable, right, at the end, you can still be vulnerable, says everything you need to know about the All Blacks. The great thing about these games is their rarity. And rugby doesn't understand enough of, of, of that about itself. In, in the mid-90s, England started playing Australia in the Cook Cup. Every year, home and away, I was quite friendly with John Eels, who was as good a rugby player as I've ever seen and was the captain of the Wallabies. And I remember saying to him, I see you more than I see Gloucester. You're meant to be rare. These are meant to be events. And it's absolutely fantastic. I could understand why England were doing it. They wanted more and more and more games against the Southern Hemisphere so that they could catch up because they were behind at that point. And that was fine. And in, in many ways, it worked for them. And they won a world title in 2003. We all know about that stuff. But in terms of rugby as an event and putting in spectators and capturing the public imagination in the face of enormous amounts of competition from dozens of sports and football growing bigger every second and it's about to be a World Cup and all that stuff. The fact that we don't play New Zealand very often allows us to get really genuinely excited about the prospect. I think it'll be a cracking game I think um, I mean Chris might tell me I'm talking complete rubbish here but I think that when you play sides of that stature you're almost scared into an, a performance scared's probably the wrong word but you're driven into a performance because you must say to yourself in the dressing room if we don't get this right today we, we, we could be in for a right humping and it's it's just it's just a fantastic prospect I love England New Zealand games because there aren't that many of them Chris was it three tries each back in 2012 I can't remember, to be honest. Uh, they got a couple of late ones, didn't they? Definitely. Yeah, they were yeah. way ahead at one stage. I, so, yeah, I remember they scored two just after half time. You did, felt yeah. the whole crowd go like, oh, here they here come. Here we go, yeah. Look, I, I, I think they're vulnerable. I think New Zealand are vulnerable this weekend. And I think England will be quietly confident going into that game. Yes, there'll be nerves. There'll be a bit of fear that if we don't get things right. But... Yes, they put on a good performance against Wales. I think the scoreline probably flattened them. They scored, what, two two or three tries in the last 10 minutes? 
to really kind of pull away from that. Against Scotland, they had a, a big kind of last 20 minutes, again, to pull away from them. And again, like you said, they stay in the fight for a, a long time, but they have still won the championship and they bounce back from things. But this England team still has a lot to a lot to prove after the last two weekends. Yes, they had a good win against Japan last weekend, but that was very much a confidence boost and they should have should have always won that. And they'll still probably be hurting a bit from Argentina. And they know the big boys are in town over the next two weeks. And that's what's exciting as a player. They're the games you want to be involved in. Training will be a little bit cagier, it'll be a bit aggy, it'll be tense. But you'll be pushing yourself harder this week than they would have pushed all kind of season because they know they need to get it right. And I've no doubt they're coming out firing this weekend. And they're, they're not going to wait for this New Zealand team to settle. I think they've got some good players, this, this New Zealand side, but they've also got a lot of great players which aren't as great as they were. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but they're, they're in a bit of a transition. Even someone like Bowden Barrett, phenomenal player, probably hasn't played as well recently as he as he did two years ago. If we're speaking about Curry and stuff like that. Saying that, he'll probably have a game of his life this weekend. But yeah, I think I think there's definitely opportunities because they are they are in a bit of a transition. They, they still produce the goods, they still can win games. But I would say this isn't a New Zealand team of of 2011, 2015. But they're there to be respected, but they're there also to go after. I think. It's, it's yeah. interesting, Chris, isn't it? That a, a couple of their obvious frailties that they they that they're finding answers to. They they appear to be in the process of finding themselves a front row again. The the the, the two newcomers at prop and, and that guy at Hooker who's on a hell of a run. Oh, um, that, that's a that's a that's a decent unit. But you're quite right in saying on the flip side of that, Sam Whitelock is who's now 123 and cannot conceivably keep going in, in the way he has done. I mean, I've got every respect for him. Shalik has not been the player he was before he went to Japan. And now, of course, he's had the enforced break. So we don't know what's coming from him. There's still a little bit of a question mark about the precise makeup of the back row. They may have found an answer at 12 in Geordie Barrett. I don't, I don't know when they announced their side for this, but it, it's uh, but they've obviously decided that Moonga's the 10 because he's a 90% goal kicker and Bowden's not. But they want Bowden in the side. So they're beginning to get that shape. But there are a couple of holes in it that they're in the process of addressing, but they're not that far. They've not gone that far towards a conclusion. So they are quite vulnerable, certainly more vulnerable than they were in 2015 when they were as good a side as I've ever seen. Can I ask the floor, who is this a bigger game for? Obviously, the interesting thing is we look back to those that 2019 fixture and you could say that was the mark of the slippery slope for New Zealand in a way. Um, who you know have shown vulnerabilities that we haven't seen in quite some time, and England's tra- trajectory has kind of followed that, and it has been a, a slippery slope until now in terms of identity and the ability to actually put together an eighty-minute performance. Who is the who can make the bigger statement this weekend? I think it's England, very much so. New Zealand at the end of their season, end of the tour, they will be very good, but I don't think, and, and they've had their obviously they've had their troubles, they've had their ups and downs, they've had their debates and all that. I don't think a defeat, other than a really bad defeat, is going to derail them at this stage. If England lost badly, that would be huge. And it would be very encouraging and much needed if England really put together a world-class performance and put the Kiwis away in a manner um, that impresses us and and gets the crowd on side. It's been a long time since you've been really excited with the last World Cup semi-final. Probably the biggest headline although it's not a selection headline necessarily is Owen Farrell's 100th cap Chris you were obviously captain when he nailed down his starting spot truly nailed down his starting spot in the team even then even when he came into camp could you foresee not necessarily 100 caps because that's obviously quite a big claim but certainly a long long England career yeah I think I think so for me Owen is um, he's, he's the best player I've played with for sure in terms of his ability on the pitch to get the best out of each other his ability to continue pushing players, his ability to learn from himself, learn from his mistakes. And both Chris and Brendan would have interviewed him and seen a difference in how he is 10 years ago compared to how he is now. And of course, on the pitch, he's he's very different. He, he goes away and studies a lot because he always wants more. He always wants to improve and like he he deserves it this weekend and he deserves the accolades he gets. And I think he gets a bit of a tough time at, at, at points. But he's one of those players you want to have in your camp. No, I, I think it's interesting Chris says that and, and, and pays him that kind of tribute because 
the the country or at least the the punditocracy is still is still shorn in half over the whole Owen Farrell thing. I travelled to a funeral yesterday with Stuart Barnes in the back of the car, who is not particularly an Owen Farrell fan. There are people out there who are never, yeah. <laughs> never particularly a Stuart Barnes fan. And I know, I, don't, I mean, he's a great mate of mine. And that's not being disparaging, but there was a similar kind of debate uh, when he was playing. And, and and you know, was it going to be him or Rob Andrew in the England tenure? All, all that kind of stuff. Me, and I would argue with Stuart and everyone else who wants to have a go at Farrell, I would argue that he's absolutely indispensable. And you would not want to be in a game like the France-Australia game, let's say, last Saturday night, which was a full-on physical, attitude-driven, emotional battle with Owen sitting on the bench or in the stand. You want him out there. He's a 90% goal kicker. He's a fantastic defender. Yes, he has a bit of red mist, but he's a, he's a fire and ice player. He plays, he, he has the fires that burn in him and he's ice cold when it comes to sticking the ball between the sticks. I think he's, yes, he's a yard short of absolute, of killer pace. We know, we know that, but crikey, he's one hell of a player. And rugby is still about emotion and it's still about intensity. And it's still about when your backside's right against the wall, fighting like hell for yourself and your teammates. And Owen embodies that, and he'd be the first name on my team sheet. And he's only just turned 31, so who knows how many more we've oh, got. Yeah. Especially with the type of character that he is, you could see him sticking around a long time. Even his dad was scary. Yeah, still is. Now, <laughs> who wins? I need a score prediction from all of you very quickly. I have honestly no idea, so I'm going to come to someone else first. I'm not going to put anyone on the spot completely, but just come forward with a score prediction when when you can. New Zealand by eight. Uh, New Zealand by five. News. I think I think England are going to win comfortably. I think it's I think it's going to be a a real comment. I'm going to say thirty. Well, maybe not comfortably, but in this game, I'll say thirty points to twenty. Okay, England by ten. I'll go England by five. So we're split down the middle. Okay, very very interesting. Now we're going to have to move on. Chris, it's time for your random rugby fifteen. Fifteen quick fire questions. Obviously, I know we're a little bit tight for time, so we'll make them very very quick fire. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Nickname. Robo. Best rugby memory. Winning the Grand Slam. Most embarrassing rugby memory. I'll come back to this one. I've got one. What's that? Nigel Owens calling you Christopher. Yeah, yeah, I'll say that <laughs> one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pre-game tune. Game tune. I like a bit of Mumford and Sons. Nice. Post-game meal. Pizza. Nice. Best player you've played against. Richie McCall. Best player you've played with. Owen Farrell. Favorite player right now. Dupont. Rugby Idol. Uh Delalio. Favourite stadium? Bar Twickenham, Stade de France. Nice. Favourite gym exercise? Bench press. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Uh, oh. like hotel management or something like that. I always thought wow. that would be a nice lifestyle, like going around the world, good hotels. Yeah. Okay, so not a specific hotel, general like, I don't yeah. know, a chain of hotels or whatever. Yeah. Nice. Superstitions? I like to have a bar for the night before a game. Rugby law, you would change. I'd probably put like a, a bit more of a stop clock on stuff, like TMOs and scrum resets. And yeah, yeah. a stop clock. How it work? I'm not sure. Best thing about working in rugby? Winning, winning in big stadiums, the atmospheres. What's your well sixteenth question? Then what's your best ever win? Uh, yeah, probably the, probably the final one in France in the Grand Slam. Yeah, nice. taking us a long time to get there. Right. That was very, very speedy. Nice. We might have time to squeeze in one last little section, then. in which case we're going to look back at last weekend. There's one game in particular I want to look back at. France versus South Africa. Did you watch? I did, yeah. What a game. Yeah, well, it was. Um, and it was always going to be. The French, are they, they kind of know how to keep game interesting at the moment. Um, there'll be a lot of talk about Steph, uh, Peter Steph toy. And his clear out, which which again was was not nice. And I I don't know Pete Stephatoy, but I've always found him aggressive, combative. But I never found him dirty. I never found him a dirty player. Yes, he was abrasive with everything and competition and all that kind of stuff. But I I don't think that was a, a malicious thing. I think he's obviously got 
got got something wrong at the time. Similar to Dupont, I think he's an incredible player and uh, I think he's just got his timing very, very wrong. And I think that they're both going to have big bands coming their way and they're going to, they're going to have to deal with it, unfortunately. But as a game, the, the way the friends managed to claw that game back in when they look kind of all but gone. And I think French teams in recent years would have probably crumbled under the pressure and gone and kind of thrown their hands around and all that kind of stuff. But they they found a way to win. It was pretty mental from sort of the, the pre-game show to the post-game scenes. Chewy, I'm going to come to you again. Just, I don't know, just, just speak about it. <laughs> I, I found it absolutely compelling. Um, I, I mean, the first thing to say is I mean there's 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 been another Erasmus outburst and you know all that kind of thing and he, he's you know he's becoming quite repetitive now. That was a pig of a game for anyone to referee. Wayne Barnes refereed it really well, and it was very significant that the South Africans, notably Willie Larue, who didn't shut up all game, got on his nerves, and you could see Wayne, who's who's you know who's earned the right to authority. You know, he's been doing this a long time now. He's been through the fires. We all know what, you know, sort of the, the controversies that have surrounded him, uh, particularly earlier in, early in his career. And he was losing his patience with the South Africans. Now, I'm not saying Wayne made decisions on the basis of the fact that the South Africans were getting on his nerves, but he would be less than human or more than human, whichever way around that makes the most sense, that if it just didn't affect things a little bit. And... We've seen that with the French for decades. For decades, they've put themselves on the wrong side of referees. And they haven't, by their standards, and it's a low bar, but by their standards, they have an iron discipline about them in the moment. Yes, I, I mean, I think that's the first card, the Dupont incident. It's the first card they've had in ages of any yeah. of any colour. And, and and the Dupont thing was an accident. I mean, he was he, was, he didn't set out to tip the guy up. He, he just got himself into a wrong position. He'd started. He realised he couldn't finish. He couldn't really pull out of the thing very easily. And over the guy went. So, uh, But I thought it was a fantastic match. Hugely physical. It wasn't very pretty. Some of the great games in rugby history have been pug ugly. And long may it continue. Because you don't want to see 65, 20, uh, 48 all the time. Uh, it, was just, it was just a brilliant occasion. And I think that will have reinforced... French belief in themselves massively. And it's exactly the kind of thing that someone like Sean Edwards and, of course, Galtier and Ibanez, I mean, they've got a fantastic group of people there at the moment. That's a really interesting mix. And they will build on that and that will make the French not doubly formidable going into their own World Cup, but more formidable. It's a phenomenal result for them. Yeah, that's interesting because I was going to ask if we're actually starting to see some chinks in the French army. The 9-10 axis hasn't fired in the past two games. I know Antomac is coming back from injury himself and obviously Dupont did get I sent it... off. But the set piece yeah. also maybe doesn't seem quite there. The boot of Ramos has kind of rescued them in consecutive weeks. One of them, you know, they were pretty average against Australia and against a pretty average Australian side who maybe did play above par. But are we seeing a little bit of vulnerability? I know um, that, you know, they have now shown under pressure they can bite. I've got a more back. positive spin on it, um, Ollie. I mean, yeah, that, I don't think they played very well at all in the last two matches. And they've just beaten South Africa, a really pumped up, full-on South Africa, one of the most physical games I've seen for years, uh, and fairly inspired Australia. And I don't think you would rate France any more than six, six and a half out of ten for those two performances. I expect there have been harsh words from Edwards and others. Um, but, but that has to happen. You're not going to... You know, they're on a, a very high shelf at the moment and you can't stay there match after match after match, especially when you want to move up another level this time next year. So, you know, there are a few um, few chinks. I mean, I, I, I've never been totally convinced by Ntamak, which might sound ridiculous because he produces wonderful moments. But I remember watching Jalabert long before Ntamak was on the scene. I think Jalabert is a superb fly half, supreme all-rounder. And much more consistent than Untamak, um, and his kicking game is better. Now, Untamak has genius moments, and, you know, you, you pick him for that. And, yes, he does have this um, partnership with DuPont, and normally that is silky smooth, and it's not quite there at the moment. 
So I, I don't think that place is nailed down at all. Um, they, I, I'm not sure they've quite nailed down their midfield yet as well, other than Fiku. Fiku starts when totally uh, fit and healthy. They're missing a couple of players in the back three. You don't um, think Dante is a starter guaranteed? I, I did this time last year, but I'm not sure at the moment. And I'm not sure who would be the next choice after Dante. You know, where's the strength and depth there in that position? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, France have just nailed, not nailed, they've just recorded two very fine wins off rather poor performances. So it's, it's a pint half full, half empty. It depends how you look at it. Okay. They have Oligon back and that makes a big difference to them, actually. And 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 their their line out. I mean, I mean, how good a player is Wocky going to be when he mm. when he grows up and puts some weight on? I mean, crikey, absolutely phenomenal talent. And yet he's been pedestrian for his club this season. He, he seems like oh. an international player. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah some, as many are. <laughs> I can I can I can quite see all of that. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with I agree with Bren. It's they certainly haven't played well in those two big games. I think I think that I mean people. Talk, I mean, we were talking about Will Jordan, weren't we, before the um. Uh, before all this started, of course, he's you know he's not appeared because of, of injury or illness, or I think it's an inner ear infection or something. Yeah, he couldn't fly, could he? But if 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 Damian Penno is not is not if not classically the best wing in the world, he's the best wing in the world in every other respect. I mean, he is he is a phenomenal player. He's, he is Chris Ashton with serious brain power. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Because he puts himself on people's shoulders, he's a complete. He's not a goal hanger because he has to do far too much work often to score to score the points he does. But he's his his instinct as a finisher, and his eye for the main chance and his eye for possibilities. I think puts him in a category of one at the moment. I think he's absolutely brilliant, and if he stays fit. The team's going in in the last five minutes. If they want to beat the French, they're going to have to be more than seven points ahead because he is just the bloke to pull things out of fire. And uh, Sekou Makalu showed himself to be not too bad a winger either. (laughs) (laughs) He's some unit, isn't he? He's some unit. Well, as I said said earlier in this conversation, I too was a flanker. (laughs) Hand on heart, I can't say I was as quick as him. (laughs) Even now, even in your prime, no, no, no. I, I mean, I mean, I, I could still get there because I'm, I'm, I'm still shaving seconds off the clock. But, um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I mean, he's a, they do have some real athletes, don't they? Phenomenal athletes. Yeah. And yeah. and of course they've got Vilemsa to come back into the second row, yeah. which will which will free up Wocky to do all the things you know he can do around the field and put him into bits of space and what have you. Uh, they they've got as you say they've got, got a couple mi- missing in the back division that will add. I agree with Brendan that that uh, that that uh, Jalabert is um, is some ten. I, I mean, classically, a far probably a, a far more potent ten than Entomac, who's a more of a stylized player. And the thing with Dupont, of course, is that people are really looking out for him now, aren't they? Opposition, <laughs> oppositions are basically saying to themselves, "We stop this guy, and we stop France." So they're all over him like a bad suit at the moment. I mean, he's got absolutely no space mm-hmm. at all. So even if the ball's only marginally scruffy, he finds himself in a sea of trouble. He'll come through that because he's such a brilliant player. He'll find different things to do, and that's fine. But at the moment, he's a big target for the opposition. It makes it quite difficult for you to shine when they're all after you. Can I just say with Makalu, I thought the only decision that Wayne Barnes actually got wrong last week was... The, uh, the, the but he got it wrong for the right occasion, and that's when he adjudicated uh, against Makalu, didn't he? About um, not releasing, or, or yeah, he said he'd been tackled. And it was a penalty, and it was three points. Now the TMO came in and reversed that decision. I don't think TMO had any right to be coming in there. We don't want TMOs coming in on every marginal call. Wayne Barnes is the ref. That's what he saw. He made the call, and yet you had in the women's World Cup final. You had the right decision for the wrong reason. You had the TMO came in. Do you remember uh, with the and they were they spent the time forming the line out, and yeah. in, in the meantime they found a fractional touch, hadn't they, on the hand when it went into touch? So they reversed the decision, scrum back, New Zealand score the winning try, and that was the right decision for the wrong reason. I think Barnes made the wrong decision for the right reason. I don't want to see TMOs coming in so much on anything other than foul play. Or try decisions. That that line out in the World Cup Cup, Cup final, you're dead right to highlight that because that was that was a, a final decider. That was that was the game turning moment. 
And that only happened. And this is where the, yeah. the mess of the system is that there's no there's no consistency or continuity about if and when a TMO intervenes. Now, that line-out was changed because there was an England injury. The crowd were beginning to boo because That's they it. thought England were trying to eat up time with injuries. And that it just gave whoever was putting all this stuff together the opening to screen that to the crowd, which starts them booing even more because they can see the touch. Exactly. They revisit it. You go back to Owen Farrell in the cup final against whoever it was back in the day, scored an early try, banged the ball in celebration into the crowd, twanged his hamstring, and while he was being treated for doing that in uh, in the in-goal area and the game not restarted, it gives them a chance to show what is clearly a forward pass on the big screen and the tries wiped off. But other TMOs won't intervene. And it is also a fact, isn't it, that the TMOs are listening to commentaries. They are listening to commentaries. Yeah. And when really good um, spotters in commentary teams say, I'm surprised they're not looking at this, I'm surprised they're not looking at that, that was clearly forward, that was a knock-on, they may have missed it completely, the TMOs, but they hear this in their ear, and suddenly you retrospectively look in something that you had no intention of looking at um, a minute before. And that's not the system that should be open to us, I'm afraid. It's yeah, are we going to have TMOs on really minor stuff like you yeah. know, crooked feed, um, not straight at the line out? No, we can't go down that route. We can't have three-hour rugby matches. No. Chris, did you watch Italy-Australia? And on the Italy-Australia note, obviously... You've been part of a Six Nations or several where Italy have been a little bit of an afterthought. Now, we are potentially seeing the start of an Italy team that could actually compete at that sort of level. Yeah, I mean, they were they were brilliant. The Italians were brilliant and they deserved that win. It wasn't like they got a couple of intercepts and kind of raced away from it for being, what, 17 3 out. Uh, Tommy Allen, of course, the Harlequin was great. Their fullback, brilliant. And I think the way they're playing now in... Italy kind of they used to just play kind of a forwards orientated game and rely on that and a moment of brilliance. But they were playing two sided attack. They were throwing different options at the line. The forwards were playing. The backs were were dangerous, and they deserved it. And it's it's brilliant for world rugby to see, like I said, how far they've come. The Six Nations this year is going to be brilliant. I mean, you look at obviously everyone saying who's the favourite for the World Cup, and people are saying France and Ireland and. And then you look at the way Scotland played last weekend against the All Blacks. Italy are playing well. It's going to be brilliant. And that's why it's so special. That's why it's so special to be part of Because you know, if you have one bad day, you're you're out. So I think, yeah, I think the Italians have, have done some incredible things. I think the other side of it, the Aussies look like they've, they've got a bit of a way to go. Was that a bit of a fall on their own sword? Did they pay enough respect to the Italians? Changing a lot of players, all that kind of stuff. But, but that's on them and look, credit to Italy. I want to put a more positive spin on it, on not just that game in itself, but the autumn in itself, which I think we'll all agree has been pretty top tier so far. There's that, and rugby is a spectacle, and international rugby is a spectacle, which I think since that drab series against the Lions, it has you know gone back up a gear or two. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. well as the, pre the, the scenes we're seeing in France, the pre-stadium shows, the post-stadium parties, essentially. What an advert for the World Cup in a in eleven months' time. Totally gripping. I mean, we did we did forecast that this autumn would be pretty special. It hasn't let us down. Um, and that's actually a word. I thought that, you know the Amazon crews and commentary teams production has has really gone up a level. They're a bit clunky the first time they did it last year. It's really really good coverage. I mean, it's another debate whatsoever that um, whether it should just be on Amazon. But the coverage has been really good. It's been spectacular and. Harking back to that, the Italy game, you've now got Italy playing some marvellous... This, this lad, Capuccio, he's got, in the last 12 months, he's got three of the best tries I've seen. You know, that... Well, it was, I, I always think he scored the one in Cardiff. Of course, he didn't. Padovani yeah. scored it. Capuccio <laughs> made it. But there, his first try on Saturday was an absolute screamer. It was more of a team try. Absolute screamer. And yet it was his second try, the so-called match-winning try, which has won the, the try of the week. I mean, he's a special player, that lad. He really is something... X, X factor all through him. Uh, it's, it's been really, really good. I thought Scotland for the first hour against New Zealand were really good. They should have they should have been 20 points up against New Zealand. They absolutely had them on the ropes and just in a very Scottish way didn't deliver that knockout blow. And I'm just 
you know, England were good against Japan, but I really want them to come to the party this weekend and, and show us something of, you know, put their best foot forward. I, I think it's a relief that Italy are doing this just in time, actually, because it was fast becoming almost impossible to defend their yeah. um, to defend their place amongst the the sort of, the sort of guaranteed elite of the game. Um, in the expense of Georgia, you know, the last time they played Georgia, they lost to them. Uh, it was becoming very difficult. They have begun to put some performances together. They're doing what they did, what they did last uh, last weekend without Garbisi. Yeah, they're doing all this without Pelledri. So there's there's your two best players, or two of your very best players, out of contention. I think the first choice hooker's missing, isn't he? At the moment, who's who's a decent player uh, or a very good player? So uh, Kieran Crowley, bless him who doesn't get very excited at the best of times and wasn't excited at all by anything that happened at the weekend. But he's clearly brought some focus and some and some sensible management to what's been going on down there. And he's getting some performance out of them. And it's a relief because, as I say, yeah. it was becoming unsustainable for them. You can't lose the best part of 46 Nations matches on the trot in the modern age and then not be any jeopardy attached to it. And it was going to become an issue. There's some clever stuff going on with Italy. In the summer, they sent what they called a merge in Italy. It was basically a team from their, their national league, the 10, and the complete amateurs of the division below that. They sent them down to South Africa for three matches against provincial matches. And then a few of those lads and the under-20s went up to Leicester last week. Um, now, Leicester put out a pretty strong side because they had no, you know, they, they had this sort of gap of fixtures. Then he lost, I think it was 30-19, like 32-19, and the Italian boys got two really good tries, and that was a strong lesser team. They're just, they've just got a squadra of decent players now and a bit of depth. You know, they're still going to take a few defeats at various times. And, and also, once you get a player like Capuccio, I mean, I covered Ireland in the 90s, and it was a pretty soul-destroying uh, beat. And then suddenly this lad O'Driscoll comes on the scene. Absolutely stone-cold, world-class talent. And you can just see the players around him sort of put the chest out a bit. And if you've got a world-class player on your team, nothing is lost. The match is never lost. You can be taking a beating, but you've got a bloke who can do something who will win you that match, save you that match. And I think if he had found that now in Capuccio, and he, you know, he's going to be the talisman. And I like to think they're really going to kick on now. I mean, on my old Twitter handle, I used to have hope to live old enough to see a six, Italy Six Nations uh, championship win, championship title. And I'd given up on that. But I now think it's not that far down the line. Next three so you, you must have given up on the win, let alone the title. I, I'm beginning to give up on the win, <laughs> let alone the title. It, but... it, I mean, it, it is true, isn't it? That when sides, when sides are weak, as Italy have been weak, what the most difficult thing in the world to do is is chase a game. You can't chase. You 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 know, if you've got, if you've gone 15 points down, it's done. Yeah. Got, there's nowhere for you to go. You haven't got the players really to get you back into the game. And what's more, you don't really have it up here. You don't have the and you don't have it in the in the heart. You don't have the emotional intensity to chase the game effectively. And now you sort of think they can. You know, if they if they if they fall behind them and they they chase a game a bit against Wales, didn't they? Um, mm. Back end of the Six Nations. But if you can do that, that then puts you. I mean, that's what that's what the great sides can do. The greats, you know, or the All Blacks in particular, just can win from. They come from behind, and 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 they can do it, and they test you until the 80th minute. Italy have always tested teams, particularly in the middle of games, but generally what you found was England would score 15 points in the first quarter of an hour, then the game would go to sleep, and Italy would have the ball for almost the whole of the next hour, and then England would score two tries in the last five five minutes, and it'd be 35 eight. Yeah. And, and that's not what that's not where they are now, and and that's because of the players they brought through, and because of the way Crowley's running things right now. Yeah. And good for them. Final question for you, Chris, if I may, just while we've got you here, could I just get a very very distant World Cup prediction in terms of how far England get and who wins? No, I think I think England still have a bit of work to do, but I don't think it's out of reach. I think probably from a taking my England hat off. I'd probably say the French are the favourites. Good, they look tough. They look like they can play a bit, but also defend. But yeah, like like everyone in this country, I, I love it for England to to go all the way. Is that a prediction then that England are going to go all the way? Not unbiased. Unbiased. Unbi unbiased. I think France, but 
in saying that, if England win their next two games against big opposition, things change very quickly. Yeah. Does that mean a France-England final then? We'll go France-England final and then it's a, a coin toss. Okay, nice. In Paris. Yeah, what a day I'll that I'll go away from England, can I? <laughs> not too fast. Uh, if, I, if I'm not allowed to choose England, I'll take that. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, I'll, I'll accept that. 5.30 on Saturday is the big one this weekend. Very, very much excited and excited to talk to you guys again to review it and look ahead to the big, the second big one against South Africa. On that note, guys, we are going to have to wrap up there. Thanks so much for um, coming, Chris. I'm sure the baby is starring. Thank you, guys Thanks again. you again, Chris. Get yourself a copy of the Rugby Paper in stores on Sundays or delivered to you through our digital subscription. Enjoy what's set to be another cracking weekend of Autumn Internationals and we will look back on it and look ahead to England-South Africa in next week's episode.